0: Genesis chapter 30, beginning in verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my, answer, my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good. Let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees, and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped, and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whatever or whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels, and donkeys, this is God's word. You may be seated. Let's take a, take a moment and ask for the Lord's help, can we? Lord, every jot, every tittle, every word of your scripture is profitable for us, for instructing us in Christ So instruct us today, Lord, through your word. By your spirit in us, who sees things in your word that we don't yet see, would you reveal them to us as we look carefully? Would you strengthen our faith? Would you help us to love Jesus? In Christ's name, amen. Sometimes it is hard To tell if someone is a Christian think about someone you've met before maybe maybe someone you work with maybe someone you've been to church with maybe it's you you know for a fact that their life is a disaster and they'd even admit that to you. And there, there are several aspects of their life where if they were actually obedient to God, they wouldn't have such a hard time. And they're aware of that as well. But for whatever reason, mostly because of the consequences of a lot of decisions they've made over the years, they're just a mess. But when you have a conversation with them, you, you kind of get the sense that there's a little nugget of hope in there somewhere. Hearing them speak reveals a a core of something, something like faith in Christ amidst all the chaos swirling around in their life. And the question you have as you're talking to them is, is that real? Jacob is like this in many ways, isn't he? With the the exception of the, his argument with Rachel in, in the last uh, section we read, Jacob has said nothing, to our knowledge, over the last seven years that is recorded for us in the Scriptures. He's basically been silent, and all we have to judge Jacob on are his actions, and his actions have been less than righteous. We know that Jacob, 14 years ago, had an encounter with the Lord. What we might call a mountaintop experience. But that was 14 years ago. This is the kid who went to youth camp, heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and then life came at him hard and fast. He blinked, and now he has four different baby mamas. As as observers watching Jacob's life... We don't know what's going on in Jacob's heart. We don't know what exactly Jacob even believes anymore. We know that he vaguely believes that there's a God. But everyone then believed in gods, even gods that provide children. So Jacob's angry statement to Rachel in the last section that that God has withheld children from her, that doesn't really tell us much. The driving question is, does Jacob know the Lord As his God. Or has he given up on the Lord altogether and become a pagan like the rest of the people in the East? After all, he does seem to have bought into their polygamous understanding of marriage, right? Is he a man, is Jacob a man with a mustard seed sprout of faith and it's just growing hidden there in all the dirtiness of his life yet to break through the surface Or is Jacob a man who maybe was a little seedling in chapter 28, but as he grew, became choked out by the weeds, and he is not any longer a person of faith? Who is he? So I'm going to show you three reasons today why I believe Jacob is of the faith, okay? And there are three measures that I hope will help us when we think about our own faith, Three measures that we see in this section that will help us think about our own faith or the faith of others when we ask that question, is it real? Faith expresses itself in the life of believer in these three ways. There are more, of course, but these are three that are common in the Scriptures. The first that we're going to see, and just to let you know if you're taking notes, these are not even sections, this is not an outline. These are three measures of faith that we see in Jacob that are just truths that we're going to see as we're walking through the text, all right? So, these aren't sections, they are truths. Through faith, the first one is this, through faith, a believer speaks of God's promises as realities. A believer speaks of God's promises as realities. Secondly, through faith, a believer is strongest in weakness. A believer is strongest in weakness. And finally, through faith, a believer rests securely in the foolish things of God. We see each of these expressions of faith in Jacob in our passage this morning. Let's start with a little context for those of you who are visiting with us or haven't read Genesis in a little while, or those of you who just have short memories like me. We need to remember this all happens right at the end of year 14 for Jacob. Jacob arrives in Paddan Aram, which is the east. He works for Uncle Laban for seven years, thinking that he will receive beloved Rachel as his wife. Laban switches the wife for the sister Leah. Jacob then gets Rachel as well, but he pays for her with another seven years of labor. So, 14 years. Over the course of the second seven-year period, Leah... Wife number one bears six sons and one daughter to Jacob. Her servant Zilpah bears two sons to Jacob. Rachel's servant Bilhah bears two sons to Jacob. And finally, at the end of the seven years, very end of the seven years, almost like the last day, Rachel bears her own son to uh, to Jacob, and his name is Joseph. Joseph's birth at the very end of this seven-year period is the signal that Jacob has done his time, as it were. He's been fruitful and multiplied. And what we see then in verses 25 and 26 of our text is that Jacob is more than ready to get out from underneath Laban's thumb. He served his time. It's time to go. Let me out of here. And he essentially says what Moses will later say to Pharaoh after, they, after the Israelites had been fruitful and multiplied during their slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh, let my people go. The language Jacob uses is similar, and that is the language of a slave, an indentured servant, not the language of a nephew. He says three times in this passage, 29 and 30, I've served you. Whatever has taken place over these last 14 years, it's been grueling servitude for Jacob, and he's ready to leave. But I want you to notice something in in his request. Look at verse 25. Verse 25. This is where we're going to see the speaking aspect of faith, faith speaking of God's promises as realities. Verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. He does not say, send me back to where I came from or send me back to my father, or just the simple let me go that we see in Exodus. He, he says, send me that I may go to my own home and country. That personal pronoun. You see that? It's a very important pronoun because it, it shows that in the midst of all the chaos of Jacob's life, Jacob believes in God's promises. Now, why do I say that? Because the earthly reality, the on-the-ground reality, is that Jacob doesn't have a country His father and his grandfather were strangers, aliens, sojourners in Canaan. They only have a graveyard to their name. They wander around herding sheep on whatever land they're allowed to to use, but they don't own the land. They have no governing body in the land. So when Jacob says, send me to my country, there's no country to speak of. Not yet. And this is where we see his faith, because faith leads a believer to speak of God's promises as realities. Jacob believes that the Lord has this land set out for him because the Lord said he did. Genesis twenty eight thirteen: I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And Jacob says, that's where I want to go that's my country. On account of God's promise to Jacob, then Jacob tells Laban, send me to my country. Faith speaks of God's promises as realities. Faith is believing that God's word is so sure, so true, that it is more reliable than what I can see or smell or touch or taste. God's word is more reliable than my experience's. Because out of the heart the mouth speaks, what begins to happen is the words we say, the language we use, expresses our beliefs. This is particularly true when a believer is talking to an unbeliever. In the context of believers, people sometimes try to fake the language. But when talking to an outsider, like when Jacob is talking to Laban someone who does not follow Christ. There's no motivation to fake it, to use the lingo. Jacob, talking to pagan Laban, uses language that identifies him, Jacob, with the Lord, Yahweh. And if you're wondering where we as believers might be similar to Jacob in this, think of the way that you as a believer will say, I am saved or, I have been saved. It's very common for Christians to talk that way, isn't it? Have you, though, have you already been saved? Ultimately, no, you have not. No more than Jacob already has a country. Your salvation is not yet complete, it's not in the past tense. Jacob's inheritance of the land is not yet complete. Your salvation began with Christ's work on the cross for you as an atonement for your sin. But then you heard of that work on your, on your behalf, God's Christ's work on your behalf. Then by the Spirit in you, you turned from yourself and to Christ's finished work. Faith in Christ's work then united you to Christ's death. And in that union brought about by the Spirit through faith, your sinful flesh was crucified with Christ. That's already happened. Already. So in the sense of things that have already happened, if you are trusting in Christ, it's already true that your condemnation is gone because Christ has already taken it. But what did Jesus do after he died? He rose again. He walked the earth for 40 days, appeared to the 12 and the 500 and the 1, and he taught them many things and then ascended into heaven and now sits at God's right hand. And so if you are united to Christ's death on the cross through faith in Christ. By the power of the Spirit, you have also been raised from the dead and are now in Christ, seated at God's right hand, but only through union with Christ, only through the Spirit, only through faith, not through what you see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. And unless Christ returns first, your physical body is going to wear out and die. Because Christ has not yet returned and raised the dead, the only sense in which you have been raised from the dead is in Christ. And so, your future, your future life is bound up in Him. That's why Romans 6, 5 puts it this way, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall, that's future, we shall, something that will happen, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. As a Christian, you walk now as one who is characterized not by the alreadyness of Christ's return, but by the hope of Christ's return. If he doesn't return, if he isn't going to return, then the whole Christianity thing turns out to be a sham. And yet, because of faith, we talk like it's already happened. We say, I've been saved. And all we mean by that is, my sins have been atoned for, I've been justified before God in Christ, and I now walk in the hope of a salvation that is coming at Christ's return. But for those who are trusting in Christ, his return is a certainty, because just as he told Jacob the land would be his, he told us he will be coming back. And so in faith, with Jacob, we say with confidence, I don't belong here, I belong in my country. Faith speaks of realities that have not yet come to pass, but are certain. And what we're going to see is that Jacob is so certain of God's promises that he's going to place a seemingly impossible bet on God and against Laban. And that's what we see play out in these following verses. In verse 27, Laban says basically, no, you can't leave. He says it nicely by pretending to be respectful to Jacob. That phrase, if I have found favor in your sight, that is a a, a common phrase that less powerful men would say to more powerful men. Laban is pretending here to elevate Jacob, pretending to honor him. This is what we call flattery. In other words, it's a lie. And then, as the devil always does, he mixes a little nugget of truth with the lie. Laban says, I've learned by divination that the Lord Yahweh, he's using the Lord's covenant name, the Lord has blessed me because of you. And that's true. It's true that Jacob is a blessing to Laban. He is, after all, the offspring of the promise through whom will come the blessing to the nations. That's the, the promise that we've been seeing from Genesis 12 onward. The way I imagine Jacob in Padan Aram, it's like he's walking through this dry desert, and in his wake behind them, the brown starts turning green, and the flowers are popping up out of the dry land, and little lambs and goats are prancing around in abundance behind him. From very little. Earthly blessing just seems to follow him. Earthly blessing follows the offspring of the promise as a preview of what is to come in the new creation. It's not unlike Jesus' work when he walked the earth. Multiplying bread and fish. Healing diseases and so on. And the cause that leaves a wake of abundance behind Jacob and the cause that leaves a wake of abundance behind Jesus is the same cause. It is all the Lord's work. And Laban, who is a pagan, that means he worships other gods, several other gods. We'll see more of that next chapter. Laban has come to know either by some sort of pagan witch who's told him or, or, or he's sorted through the tea leaves or chicken guts or some other weird divination. Laban has come to understand that this god of Jacob's family is a God of abundance. And Jacob is the conduit for this abundance. And Laban wants the goose that lays the golden eggs to stay in his keep. So Laban says in verse 28 the same thing that he told Jacob 14 years ago. Name your wages. I'll do anything to keep you here. Name your wages. And it's that phrase that triggers Jacob. I mean, think about the last time he heard that phrase from Laban. He doesn't trust Laban anymore, and he starts into Laban. He gives him the what's what. In verses 29 and 30, Laban says, Look, the Lord has made you rich through me. When I got here, you had nothing. I've given you more than you could have possibly dreamed of. Now it's time for me to provide for my family, your daughters. So Laban responds, kind of de-escalating the situation. What shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. Don't miss that. Jacob knows no matter what comes next, it will not be coming from Laban. It won't be Laban's generosity. When he says, you shall not give me anything, he's reminding Laban, he has worked and has therefore earned whatever he gets. It's not Laban that would be Jacob's provider. Jacob knows that. Jacob knows whatever he gets is coming from the Lord. And what comes next is that Jacob shows that he so trusts in the Lord's promise of provision that he's willing to begin in a place of worldly weakness. Look at verse 31. You shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. Now, to give you a little context here, normally... A shepherd's wages, working for a landowner, would be about 20% of the profits, 20% of the flock here. Jacob is agreeing or offering to take far, far less than that. In these flocks, there would be mostly... White sheep and mostly dark colored goats. And occasionally there would be recessive genes in the plain colored animals and those genes would throw variegated colors in the lambs and the kids. And Jacob is saying, I'll take that handful of whatever extras there are. I'll take that handful of goats and sheep that have that variegated look. The ones that don't fetch you much at the market. He's offering him a screaming deal. Far less than 20%. And he's going to take basically the, the scratches and dents. Jacob is going to start from a position of weakness with next to nothing, just a handful of sheep and goats. And he's going to shepherd his little flock alongside Laban's, and when his animals, animals have multiplied enough to take care of him, he's going to be on his way. And Laban, Laban is, is, is thrilled. He, he happily shakes on this loser of a deal, and he walks away just kind of laughing and you know, ribbing with, with, his, with his sons. We got him. We'll show him. He'll be here for a re- really long time. And then to further put the bet in his favor and to enslave Jacob indefinitely, look what Laban does in verse 35. He takes all of what would have been Jacob's, which isn't much, and he puts that in the charge of his sons and sends them away. So let's just say, I'm just spitballing here, Out of if there are 400 sheep and goats in Laban's flock, 20 of them have these variegated markings, these recessive colors. Laban takes those, sends them away. Now Jacob is starting with absolutely nothing. And in Laban's mind, there's no chance at all that Jacob will be able to gain anything from this deal. The the, the variegated sheep and goats are now completely out of the flock, and in theory, every lamb and kid that is born in this flock will now have the normal look. Dark-colored goats, light-colored sheep, nothing for Jacob. But look at Jacob's reaction, or lack of reaction. He doesn't flip out. He doesn't complain. He doesn't say, that's not fair. What have you done? I actually think Jacob expected this from Laban. He's been with him 14 years he knows Laban. A, a, a liar knows another liar. And I, I don't have any evidence to offer you that Jacob knew that Laban would do this, but I have seen enough spy movies, and that's my favorite, favorite genre of movie. You know how there's the, the, the whatchamacallit device that one spy is trying to steal from another spy, and the good guy spy knows that the bad girl spy is trying to steal it from him? So what does he do? He sets up a decoy, whatchamacallit, and the bad girl falls for it. She takes the decoy and ends up right where the good guy spy wants, and then they kiss for some reason. (laughs) And she gets mad at him for not trusting her. Based on the way this story goes, I have to believe that Jacob knew, the same way that that a spy would know another spy, Jacob knew that Laban was going to try and pull a fast one on him. And he almost seems to be inviting Laban to pull fast one of his old tricks. But even if that's that's not the case, even if I'm wrong about that, even if Jacob wasn't expecting this deceit from Laban, the Lord was. And the Lord has ordained that Jacob would start with nothing. Because faith is strongest in weakness. And the Lord is shaping this faith in Jacob. In 2 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul is suffering from a thorn in his side, and the Lord will not remove it. And the lesson from the Lord to Paul, his servant, is that this thorn is meant to keep Paul humble and relying on Christ. And that's what I believe is happening here. Laban is the thorn in Jacob's side. He is literally a messenger of Satan. Satan. That keeps Jacob weak. Nothing Jacob does on his own works under Laban's rule. But weakness in ourselves is where faith in the Lord shines brightest. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong Jacob is likewise content with this weakness that has been imposed upon him this, this weak position of having nothing starting with nothing and only here or here only the Lord's work can bring about victory over Laban only the Lord can provide for Jacob and get him out of Aram and headed home Jacob cannot hope in himself here, because he has nothing. As Christians, weakness, and by weakness I mean in, in every sense, physical weakness, mental weakness, worldly weakness, we, weakness in all of its forms, poverty, hunger, weakness in all of its forms remind us that we are fragile and vulnerable and breakable and mortal. Weakness reminds us that we are creatures made of dust. And brothers and sisters, as painful as that is, that is a good reminder. You need that reminder. I need that reminder daily. It's a holy reminder. Because when we're reminded of our mortality, we're reminded that, as Paul says, we carry within us the death of Christ. Weakness reminds us of death, and death reminds us that we have already been crucified with Christ. And it is now the life of Christ that is manifest in our bodies, and that motivates us to live as Christ's representatives when you're trusting in Jesus Christ, when you are marked by faith, then weakness brings you nearer to your identity in Christ. And this is the Lord's will for you. Think of Rachel last week. The Lord brought her to see that she had no power in herself so that she would know the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is why, just as a little historical parenthesis here, an application for you, this is why fasting has been a means of grace for Christians for millennia. It's not the health benefits. Fasting very quickly reminds us of our weakness, our mortality, our neediness. And our weakness reminds us of who we are in ourselves, which is nothing, but even better, who we are in Christ, which is everything. Fasting is a means of grace that the Lord has given us in order to keep us humble. That's why Jesus taught that it was counterproductive to boast about fasting. It's meant to cultivate weakness in us, not a reason to puff ourselves up about how holy we are. So he says, when you fast, do it in secret, so that the Father will see your heart posture He will see this this desire in you to rely on him and he will reward you. He will strengthen your faith. Jacob, in faith, willingly puts himself in a position of weakness and the Lord, through Laban, makes Jacob even weaker. And then in Jacob's weakness, Jacob does something that looks to us like utter and complete foolishness. He takes sticks from three different types of trees, peels off some bark, sets it in the water when the stronger of the flocks came to drink. And because that's also where the flocks happened to breed, they would be looking at the striped sticks and would bring forth striped offspring. But he didn't do it when the weaker flocks were breeding and those flocks produced normal offspring and he gave them to Laban. Now, if you read this and you thought, this just sounds like alchemy or some sort of voodoo. I don't blame you for thinking that. It does appear that way. But there is a key here, and we find it in the narrator's description of the sticks. He names their species, which seems to us to be okay. Poplar, almond, plane trees, this is not some sort of special recipe, but that when these three trees are put together, it releases a chemical into the water that somehow influences the animal's offspring. Actually, these th- tree names are symbolic, and so are the stripes. The stripes expose the whiteness of the bark. So You have dark sticks, peeled back, white uh, white. F- tree flesh underneath the literal phrase in the hebrew is jacob was peeling the white naked in the rods peeling the white naked in the rods because the word for white is laban the literal phrase is peeling the laban naked in the rods and the word for the poplar tree is also very similar to the word for laban if you know a poplar tree it's a it's a white bark tree And the word for the almond tree is the same word meaning to depart or to turn away from. The word for the plain tree in Hebrew is very similar to the word for guile or think, think wiliness or craftiness. So if you put those together, we miss it in English, and I really would do this to you to say that you have to learn Hebrew to get it, but but it's there. If you set all of those together, Genesis 30 verse 30 says and says, 37 says, Then Jacob took fresh sticks of Laban and depart from and guile trees, and he peeled Laban naked in the rods. The poetry of it all is that Laban is being exposed for who he really is, and Jacob is going to depart from his cunning and guile. The sticks aren't doing anything, not, not in themselves. The sticks are symbolic of that reality of the Lord working in Jacob's life so that he can leave Laban behind. And who is Laban? How were we introduced to Laban? He was the one who told Jacob, you're related to me. You're like me. We're cut from the same cloth. Laban is old Jacob. Right? Scheming Jacob. Jacob is turning from his old self, his old ways. When he he leaves his doppelganger behind, that's when the Lord is going to give him what we'll see soon, a new name. He isn't going to be the scheming little brother anymore. Rather, he's going to be Israel, the father of a nation. That won't come till later. The reason why we know that Jacob's actions with these sticks are symbolic of his faith is because of what we see in chapter 31. This is one of those instances in Genesis where the end reveals. The beginning so next chapter look at genesis 31 verses 10 through 12 and jacob reveals the secret of the sticks in the breeding season of the flock i lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped spotted and mottled. then the angel of the lord said to me in the dream jacob and i said here i am and he said lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped spotted and mottled. for i've seen all that Laban is doing to you. And do you remember what lifted up your eyes or lifted up my eyes means in Genesis? It means seeing with eyes of faith. It's always the way that that phrase is used in Genesis. Lifted up eyes are eyes of faith. Jacob has seen with eyes of faith that no matter what these animals look like on the outside, the hidden reality is that all the males breeding Jacob's flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled, because the Lord is with Jacob. Because the Lord is fulfilling his promises to Jacob to bless him. The Lord is multiplying his flocks because he sees all that Laban is doing to Jacob. And the Lord is working to free Jacob from this enslavement. And so Jacob has set these sticks in the water as a sort of proclamation of the Lord's work. And what is to come. These sticks look to us like a hopeless effort by Jacob to get something from nothing, like Jack trading the family cow for a magic bean. It appears to be foolishness to us at first glance. It definitely appears to be foolishness to Laban, the offspring of the serpent. But those sticks in the water are representative of a spiritual reality. The Lord is present, and he's rescuing Jacob from the crafty Laban. The man who represents Jacob, and and, and who Jacob will become, and the devil, and the enemies of God, that's all Laban. Laban is all of those things, and the Lord is bringing Jacob out of that. The sticks in the water are representative of that bringing out of reality. We have, as Christians, some similarly foolish-looking practices. You know that when we go into the waters of baptism, what's happening? Are we changing in the water? Is there something magic in the water? If we filled up this tank and we had all of our entire neighborhood walk up the aisles and into the back area and up the stairs and down into the water and back out the other side, would we say they've been baptized? Or, Zeph, when you were playing in the water with your siblings last night? You guys were pretending to be baptizing. Were you actually baptizing? No, you weren't. If we had a hot tub party in the baptistry, (laughs) would those people be baptized? No, the water is no more effective in uniting us to Christ than those sticks were in producing striped lambs. But just as those sticks represented Jacob's faith in the spiritual reality of what God was doing, to give Jacob a new life, baptism represents our uniting to Christ's death and being raised to new life. But the Lord, through faith, through the Spirit who unites us to Christ, is the one doing the work. It's not the water. Or think about the Lord's Supper. Is there anything magic or transforming about the bread and the little juice cup? There isn't, there's nothing any more transformative about about the Welch's we drink and Annie's delicious sourdough than there is with the the sticks in the water. The the physical elements are representative of a spiritual reality that is occurring when the body of Christ is nourished together in Christ. When by his word we are graciously reminded of his death and our union with his death. We are strengthened then in our union with him. But the Lord is is who strengthens our faith. God often uses physical objects to remind us of spiritual realities. Think of Moses' staff and all the work that was done by Moses' staff. Was it the staff? Was it Moses' stick? No, it was the Lord. Or think of Elijah's cloak. Was it Elijah's cloak? No, it was the Lord. The the objects are signs in the physical realm of a reality occurring in the spiritual realm. And that's what's happening with these sticks. The Lord is rescuing Jacob and giving him a new life. And he's giving him a miraculously humongous herd of sheep and goats to go with it. That's why verse 43 then says, Thus the man increased greatly. And had large flocks and female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. It wasn't the sticks. Because we've seen this before. This has happened before without sticks. In Jacob's grandpa Abraham's life, before Abraham was named Abraham by God, during a famine, Abram went down into Egypt and in fear, he sinfully endangered his wife. But through it all, the Lord protected Sarai and rescued her from enslavement to Pharaoh. In Genesis 12, 16 says, And for her, for Sarai, the Lord dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Identical outcome of abundance from the Lord. Identical What's the connection between these two stories? In both events, the man who has heard the promises of God and believes in the promises of God has found himself somehow in a strange land. Abraham in Egypt and uh, Jacob in the east. In both cases, the one who knows the Lord has sinned grievously in regards to marriage. But because the Lord is faithful to his own promises... Through the sins of both of these men, the Lord rescues them out of their situations and graciously blesses them with abundance. And in both of their cases, after the Lord rescues them and blesses them, he will adopt them and rename them. Abraham in the first, Israel in the second. Even while he was yet a sinner, the Lord showed his grace to Abram in Egypt. And he blessed him. And even while he was yet a sinner, the Lord showed his grace to Jacob. And he stirred up faith in Jacob and provided for Jacob in abundance to redeem him from his enslavement to Laban. All of that to remind us it was not Jacob's work that brought about this great increase. It was the grace of the Lord. The love of God toward Jacob. Jacob's work was no work at all but simple belief in the promises of god belief faith evidenced in his speech evidenced in his contentment with weakness evidence in his rest in the hidden things of the lord the things that are foolish to the world and so it is with you Brothers and sisters, through Christ, the Lord is redeeming you who have heard the good news of redemption and believed. You will sin like Abraham did and like Jacob did. The Lord is not relying on your perfection to save you. The Lord's mercy is greater than your sin because Christ's work has already atoned for your sin. So, How do we, what do we do? Speak as one whose trust is in the Lord's work already. Talk like someone who has faith to Christians and non-Christians.